Thank you all for coming. We're glad to have you here and dealing with all the, uh, the complications of the past two weeks. We're grateful for your patience and also just your presence and attentiveness uh, to these things today that we're giving ourselves to, to speak about Old Testament revival. Uh, just a few housekeeping matters. You can find coffee and everything you need over this direction, okay? So if you uh, need to take a break at any moment, please feel free to come and go. We're casual today. But in being casual, that does not mean non-participatory. All right? Now, uh, last night, I let you get away with some things because it was a concert. All right? That's the first time ever um, here at Christ Church that you have sat and just received something beyond some strange weeks during the pandemic. Um, but uh, you, we're back to normal operations, okay, um, where participation will be expected. And you'll have multiple opportunities to participate today um, because we're going to be listening, and that is a way of participating, hearing God's word. And then we're also going to be responding, and we're going to be responding in prayer. And it's prayer through song. And just always remember that, that hymns are nothing more than sung prayers. But we have some beautiful prayers of the church uh, scheduled today, kind of responding to our teaching um, that are going to lead you, hopefully, in reflection and interaction with God. One of the things, the treats that we have of the weekend beyond Sandra McCracken uh, is Sandy Wilson. And um, oftentimes when I chide you about participation in liturgy and interrupt the service and ask you to redo something, people will uh, think that that perhaps is novel to me. But I learned that somewhere. Um, and um, I remember one of my first, uh, first weeks at Second Presbyterian Church. Uh, it was in the 815 service, and congregation was kind of half-heartedly uh, assembling and then really not participating in an opening hymn. And Sandy walked out into the middle and stopped the organ in the whole show and, uh, and made the congregation start the hymn over. And I said, this is, you know, really great. Um, and and uh, so I picked up that and many other things. Uh, our church has had the privilege of uh, training young guys for ministry, walking with them through seminary, then taking them kind of through finishing school, those early years of learning ministry. We've got to do, gotten the opportunity to do that with several young men. And Second Pres was my finishing school where I was finishing seminary and also just learning craft and trade of ministry, and Sandy uh, was kind of my master teacher. And so it's a privilege to share him with you uh, the, uh, these two days, and so we're going to welcome him forward to lead us in our teaching. You got to warmly welcome him, I should have said. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. And uh, Chuck has uh, obviously overstated my influence in his life, I'm sure. But it was a delight to have Chuck and Melissa at Second Presbyterian for those years. And it is so great to see the two of you now. And then these three kids, Sim and Ware and McKenzie, are growing up in the Lord. It's just so encouraging. But I have to say it was also very exciting just to drive up on your campus because the last time I was here, this building was not remodeled the way it is. What a dramatic difference uh, and a statement you're making in the community uh, God is a God of beauty, uh, and we'll see that uh, Jonathan Edwards focused on that quite a bit in his ministry 300 years ago. God is a God of beauty, and you've displayed his beauty uh, in the architecture of your building, and it was such a thrill just to drive up. And then to come into this room with its simple but beautiful lines, great place to meet and to worship God, you obviously are taking very seriously who he is, what the Great Commission is, and what our task is and when we assemble. So it's a pleasure to be here. And then to be here on this occasion when we're addressing the topic that is so important, the topic of revival. Uh, in the Old Testament will be our text. However, we're going to be looking at revival in general. We can all tell that revival is something that's vital for our day. One need only read the newspaper for one day or check the news one night, and you can see that uh, we are in desperate need of a spiritual revival. As a matter of fact, when you look at the level of confusion and division and rancor and immorality that is propagated by our media and prevalent in our public, uh, you can see that the only answer for this is a great act of God. And the question is, would God be willing to do such a thing. And uh, the greater concern actually for us is not just the culture of the nation, 
but the culture and the behavior and the attitudes of the evangelical church. And I say evangelical because evangelical these days just means the believing church. There are churches that actually don't believe. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, but there are unbelieving churches. But even in the evangelical church, I've never seen anything quite like it in my 45 years of knowing the Lord and my 70 years of life. Uh, This brings back vaguely uh, the times of my early childhood and teenage years during the civil rights movement with all the divisions that were in the southern church. It reminds me of that. The hard-headedness, the stubbornness, the unwillingness to repent, the divisions that are in the church, the rancor, the lack of nuance in people's reasoning, the criticisms that are unfair against one another all remind me of those days. And one can look at the church and say, there's only one answer for this, and that is revival. I had a 17-year-old girl come up to me just last Sunday after the sermon, and she said, you know, I've had my moments of spiritual enthusiasm and excitement, but how do I maintain this? There's only one answer. We need revival and renewal. So this weekend, we are looking at something that's extraordinarily important for our country, for the church at large, for this church in particular, and for you as a individual Christian. And so I'm honored and humbled to be speaking about such an awesome topic. And my prayer is this, that together we will all learn something about renewal and revival and how it occurs. But more importantly, we will all actually be renewed. And I mean that, that this will be an actual weekend of spiritual revival for you and for Christ Church. We desperately need it. Everywhere I go, we need revival. The question is, would God be willing to do it? And what we're going to see in our text this morning is that he is not only willing to do it, but he does it. Would you turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7? And you'll remember that First and Second Chronicles cover somewhat the same history as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. In fact, if you remember like I do, the first time I read through the Old Testament, I found myself asking the question, now why is First and Second Chronicles in the Bible? Isn't it sort of a repeat? It's kind of like another one of the Gospels. You know, do we, all, do we really need all four Gospels? Well, the answer is yes or we wouldn't have them. And the answer to First and Second Chronicles is we desperately need it. Let me tell you why. First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, if you'll read them carefully, you'll see that they're really not so much about the kings, but they're about the prophets. You have these long sections about Elijah and Elisha and other prophets. The emphasis on First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings is on the necessity of the Word of God. That we're all renewed by the Word of God. We need to be devoted to the Word of God. And so the focus is on the prophets. When you come to First and Second Chronicles, there's a little different story there. There's a different intent. The intent in First and Second Chronicles is to say we need to return to the Lord. And First and Second Chronicles takes us back to history to show us that God gave us a temple where his presence was. He gave us the Davidic dynasty. He gave us a priesthood. And we need to go back to the fundamentals in order to know him and to have the blessings that he promises in the covenant. Now, why would First and Second Chronicles write about that? Here's why. First and Second Chronicles seems to have been written somewhere around 400 B.C. You remember the history? Israel, northern kingdom, was taken into exile by Assyria in 722 B.C. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was taken into exile in Babylon. God promised 
that they would return in 70 years to rebuild the temple, which they did by a decree from Cyrus, the Persian who had conquered Babylon. So many of the Israelites came back from exile from Babylon and they rebuilt the temple. And that would be in 516 B.C., 70 years after 586. Well, they had a temple, but they didn't have a wall. And you remember that Nehemiah was burdened to come back around 445, the next century, 445 B.C., to build the wall, which they did under his fabulous leadership. Well, they had a wall and they had a temple, but that temple never experienced the Shekinah glory like the first temple did under Solomon. And furthermore, they continued under the oppression of foreign powers, namely Persia. And they continued in their moral turpitude and the declension of their spiritual life. They continued to be invaded by their enemies. They continued to be a small, seemingly politically insignificant country. And they were wondering, where's the blessing of God? The author of First and Second Chronicles tells them where the blessing is to come. Go back to the fundamentals. So the author of Chronicles is writing around probably 400 B.C. when the people are under Persian rule. And they're wondering, can this country ever be anything? Can the people of God ever be anything? Can we ever experience his presence and his favor again? And so the author of Chronicles is writing to tell them, let's go back and look at our history. Let's look at the prayer of Solomon when the first temple was dedicated. And let's especially listen to the answer of the Lord to Solomon's prayer. And remember what God said to that former great king of Israel, Solomon, that applies to you today. And brothers and sisters, it applies to us today. Now, in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, Solomon has prayed. And in great fanfare and in great jubilation, Solomon prays, Lord, this is where you are, and when we come to your temple, would you please hear our prayer? When there's no rain, when there's no fertility in the ground, would you hear our prayers? When we're invaded by our enemies, would you hear our prayers and deliver us? When we're taken into captivity, would you hear our prayers and bring us back? And then we turn in 2 Chronicles 7 to see how God answered Solomon. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read this text together and make some comments upon it. Father, thank you for the promise of your presence with us, of the promise of spiritual renewal, and we pray that each one of us may experience your presence, your power, and the renewal of our souls even this weekend as we study your word together. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Let's begin with verse 1. Hear the word of God. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their face to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verses 4 through 10, you'll see that Solomon then responded with great offerings to the Lord. So the Shekinah glory had not appeared over the second temple that the readers of this, the first readers of this text were experiencing, but the writer of Chronicles said it did come down on the first temple, and then the Lord answers. Look at verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord 
and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's talk for just a moment about what revival is. When we Presbyterians hear the word revival, we immediately think of the Baptists. They have their revival meetings every springtime. I grew up a Baptist, I know. We bring the outside preacher, he'd make a little extra income because he'd get the, the week with another church and he would preach revival sermons and we would put a sign out in the front yard of the church, revival this week at First Baptist Church, Athens, Tennessee. We schedule our revivals every spring. We Presbyterians know you can't schedule a revival. You can schedule revival meetings, but you can't schedule revival because in the scriptures we learn that revival is a mighty work of God. It's a sovereign work of His in which He renews the souls of His people from which there is often a greater harvest even in the community through deeds of love and mercy and evangelism. So it's a sovereign act of God when he renews the souls of his people that issues into a massive ministry in the community. In the scriptures, there are at least 16 revivals, 10 of which are in the Old Testament. You'll find a revival, for example, under Jacob. You'll find a revival under Samuel. you find a revival under Moses. Certainly under Nehemiah, if you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah. You find other revivals, but you find five of them in 2 Chronicles. And that is the intent of the chronicler to say that God does revive his people as he promised in his words to Solomon in answer to Solomon's prayer. In the New Testament, of course, John the Baptist would have been a leader of a revival. Certainly on the day of Pentecost, there was a massive revival. When Paul goes to Ephesus, there was a major revival in Ephesus. There were several revivals in the New Testament as well. And furthermore... There were revivals after Pentecost in the church ever since that day. Even in the Middle Ages, if you go to the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi preached, and there was a massive revival in Europe. In the next century, Savonarola, who was a Dominican friar in Florence, preached Christ, and there were major revivals. This is all pre-Reformation. Certainly under Wycliffe and Huss, uh, there were revivals. And then, of course, the Protestant Reformation itself in the 16th century was a massive revival of religion uh, in Central Europe in, uh, and uh, Western Europe in particular. And then following that, the Puritan era was a, an era of tremendous spiritual revival. It was England's greatest days spiritually under the Puritans. The Puritans are made fun of by the English even today. And they are, of course, the sort of the founding fathers of Presbyterianism in the English-speaking world. But there was tremendous revival in the 17th century. In the 18th century, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield led a 
massive revival, revival called the Great Awakening that then, of course, hit America through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, and Gilbert Tennant uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Massive revival in this country before we were actually established in 1776 as a country. And then there was a second great awakening from 1800s to about 1830. We'll speak more about these revivals later on this weekend. But it was a game-changing revival. A million people were converted uh, in that revival. And then later on in the 19th century, there was a major revival in 1858, the Fulton Street Revival. We'll talk more about that a little later this morning, in which uh, hundreds of thousands of people were converted, beginning in New York City. An amazing revival. Then in 1905 and 1906 in this country, there was another major revival. We've not had one since then that was nationwide. So we, like the psalmist, will pray, how long, O Lord, uh, will you not restore and revive your people today? And I've prayed to him many times, Lord, don't you think it's been long enough? Now it's been 115 years, Lord. Is it not time to do your great work again? So we pray for revival. But I want us to think about the venues of revival. It certainly can affect an entire nation, an entire region, like the revivals that I just mentioned that have happened almost every century for the past 10 centuries. But there's also revival of a local church. And I happened to pastor one that had gone through a major revival. I was the pastor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in the Chattanooga area. Before I got there, they were under the ministry of Dr. George Long. He was there 22 years. When he came in 1965 to that church, out of 24 elders, two were converted. Two Christian elders out of 24. The church was dead as a doornail. It was a society church. You went to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian, if you're a lawyer, looking for clients. If you're a doctor, looking for patients. If you're a salesman, looking for customers. You would go to that church. It was the place to be. And the revival almost killed Dr. Long, literally. I wish I had time to tell you the story. But after seven or eight years, God began to break through. And by the time I came in 1986, the entire session was converted. The church had been revived. It was a solid evangelical church. So over the course of those 22 years, God revived a local church. There are churches that are more orthodox in their theology than Lookout Mountain was in 1965 who yet need to be revived. When Jonathan Edwards began pastoring Northampton Church in 1927 at the age of 24, can you believe that? He realized the church was dead wood. It was as dry as it could be. They were orthodox as the day is long. They were theologically sound and they were spiritually dead. And of course, you know what happened some years later in 1734 through 1737 when revival broke out in Northampton. You can read about it in Edward's great records of narratives of conversions in New England. He's written extensively about it. An amazing work of God. So even churches like a lot of us in the PCA or even EPC, some evangelical Presbyterian churches who have sound orthodoxy, sometimes we find Yes, our theology is true, but our souls are feeble. We sang it just a few moments ago. I, I love the song that we sang. Hear, hear us, O Manuel, here we are. We long to feel thy touch. Our faith is feeble, we confess. We faintly trust thy word. But will you pity us the less? Be that far from you, Lord. That's our prayer. And my prayer is for each one of us, beginning with myself, that we will be revived this very weekend. Let me make some distinctions between terms for a moment. First of all is the word you've heard me use, awakening, a great awakening. An awakening is an awareness 
of God's holiness and of my sin at a deep, deep level of sin and a high, high level of his holiness. That's an awakening. That's the reason that when you read the accounts of the great awakening, people were terrified. Because when you're awakened to the true holiness of God and the true depth of our iniquity, it's traumatizing. It can almost drive you crazy. People were climbing the walls. They were falling down the floor. They were weeping uncontrollably because they were awakened. So an awakening is simply becoming aware of reality, the reality of God and the reality of myself as a sinner. That's awakening. Then you have revival. Revival is revivification, the renewal of life. That's what revival is. And so now I discover the solution for the gap between God's holiness and my sin. It's called salvation. And I'm revived in my gratitude. I'm revived in my seeking the power of the Lord's Spirit in my life. I'm renewed in my life and power. And that's exactly how we'll sing in a few moments when we pray for the breath of God to come upon us in renewed power. That's revival. Reformation is an important word. Reformation applies to the restructuring of our doctrine or our institutions or our practices. For example, when the PCA was formed in 1973, that was a reformation. We were reforming the Presbyterian Church and reforming her doctrine so that it was increasingly biblical. And reformations are extremely important. They're not synonymous with revival, but they're related to revival. Reformation can either precede revival or it can follow revival. But it's important. In the Second Great Awakening, in the early 1800s, you would find wherever that revival went, so many organizations were developed. Salvation Army, for example. Many other organizations came out of that Second Great Awakening where we were seeking to reform our public manners, our national life, taking care of the poor, taking care of the lost. So reformation is an important outcome and sometimes an important prelude to revival. Let me give you a fourth term, the term renewal. Renewal sometimes is used synonymously with revival. And sometimes it's used as a comprehensive term to speak of awakening, revival, and reformation. So when you speak of those four terms, or when I speak of them this weekend, you'll know now what I'm talking about. And we're looking primarily at revival, the renewal of life in my soul. Even if I may have my doctrines, all my T's crossed and my I's dotted, is my soul alive and how do I keep my soul alive? Now let's look at the text then in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 14. And this morning in our first session, uh, in these next 15 minutes, I want us to see four things. First of all, in verse 13, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Let's stop right there and notice this. Revival is most often given during seasons of distress. Revival is most often given during seasons of distress. You'll notice, for example, that when 9-11 occurred, there were spiritual responses. The largest church prayer meeting I've ever been in was on 9-11. That very night in our fellowship hall, 
where we had 750 people on their knees praying to the Lord in our fellowship hall because of 9-11. We all saw the towers come down that day. We were in distress. We turned to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice in verse 13 where this distress comes from. It comes from the Lord. Look what he says. When I shut up the heavens. He doesn't speak in naturalistic terms. When Mother Nature ceases to give you rain. That's not what he says. He says, when I shut up the heavens. When I cause a famine. And when I command the locusts to devour the land. When I give you a pandemic. Do you want to know where the pandemic came from? It came from the Lord. And do you want to know where our chaos comes from? Do you want to know where the immorality in the highest places in our country has come from? It has come from the allowance of God himself. Nothing comes to you, dear brothers and sisters, unless it's filtered through the very hands of God. You're his children. He has all the power in the universe. And everything has come from him. And if you read the book of Judges, you will see this cycle of prosperity and decline. Prosperity and decline. We don't do so well, if you hadn't noticed, with prosperity. The church doesn't do well. Christians don't do well. We get very proud and we get very lazy and we get very dependent upon ourselves and all of our savvy instead of on the Lord. And he sends pestilence. And he sends chaos. And it's an act of discipline for his own people. So notice that revival does often, most often come during seasons of distress. If you'll look, for example, at the first great awakening in England in the 1730s, Folks, if you'll read the, hist the moral history of England, you'll see that in the early 18th century, before that revival, England was as corrupt as you can imagine. There were no child labor laws, and many of the poor children were working 80 hours a week in coal mines and other places, just making as much money as you could out of your children. Now we have, of course, these drug houses. Well, in London... Every sixth house was a gin house, which today the equivalent would be a drug house, making gin, and people were drinking a lot of it. The slave trade was prospering in the early 18th century in England. And it was all over the world and, of course, affecting the colonies in America as well. The politics were as corrupt as you can imagine. It was some of the darkest days. And just imagine that came only 50 or 60 years after the great Puritan revival. That's how quickly things can descend. That's when the great awakening took place. And it turned it on its head. As Os Guinness once said, the things that we feel like we can't do in an entire generation, God can do in five minutes. And that's what happens when revival comes to your soul when it comes to your church, and when it comes to a nation. So the historical background of this text is moral declension, despair, discouragement, cynicism. Where is the Lord? Are we really his people? Does he care for us in the 400 B.C.? Will he do anything? Does he even notice us anymore? Does he exist? If he exists, is he kind? Is he gracious? Does he hear prayer? Those are the kinds of questions they were being asked in 400 B.C. And the author of Chronicles was making it clear to them. You're in a good place if you're in distress because that's often when revival occurs. Now another note on 2 Chronicles. You know, the last book in your Old Testament is Malachi, which I think is appropriate for Christians uh, if you know anything about the message of Malachi. But in your Hebrew text, 2 Chronicles is the last book, or I should just say Chronicles because it's one book, First and Second Chronicles, is the last book in the Torah. 
And the reason is, if you'll look at the end of Second Chronicles uh, in chapter 36, you'll see the last words. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, this is Cyrus the pagan, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Last words in the Old Testament, let him go up. Let him return to the temple. Let him return to the Lord. Let him get back to the old paths. That's the last word in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, where's the temple today? It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the Davidic dynasty it's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of David, who rules over his kingdom. Where is the priesthood? It's the believers, the believers in Christ. We are the priests who lead in worship and encourage others to do the same. So go up to Jerusalem. Go up to the temple. Go up to the priesthood. Go up to the Davidic dynasty. Go up and worship him. Last words of the Old Testament. And then Jesus Christ comes to seal the deal. So revival is most often given during seasons of distress. As a matter of fact, what the chronicler is doing is simply recalling Deuteronomic language. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you'll see that he predicts that you're going to do this. It's not if you disobey the Lord and go into exile. No. In Deuteronomy, it predicts it and says, when you disobey the Lord and do everything opposite to what I just said in this great book of Deuteronomy, when you forsake everything, then remember this. You can call on his name and he will have mercy on you. That's in Deuteronomy. It's predicted. And so it is here. So, ladies and gentlemen, God is not surprised that you have your dry moments. And some of you may be in one right now, and you kind of dragged yourself on a sunny Saturday morning when you could be playing golf or with the kids out somewhere, and you came to church, kind of dragged yourself here. Maybe something good will happen. You're in a time of dry season. And here's the answer. Go up. Come on and go up. Go back to the things where God will indeed renew and revive your soul. Here's why. Those of you who are scientists, you know the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that with time, everything becomes less organized. It declines in its, in its organization. There's entropy. There's entropy in nature. There's entropy in organizations, in nations. They all experience the second law of thermodynamics, and so do individuals. We decline. My body is declining, so I'm taking vitamins. I try to walk my three miles every other day, trying to reverse this inevitable decline. My soul declines, and I must find ways to renew my soul. And unlike my body, which is going into the grave, my soul is renewing day by day and being conformed to the likeness of Christ. So yes, I'm going to lose my body until I get it back at the resurrection, but my soul will grow and renew. And so, yes, it's good for me to discipline my body for as long as I have it. It's even better for me to discipline my soul. And that's exactly what the chronicler wants to do here. So let's look then at verse 14, and I want us to see three things quickly in verse 14, and then we'll close. First of all, this. Revival is offered to God's people. Notice who the object is. He doesn't say, if the people of this world, if all the nations, no, he says, if my people who are called by my name. So he's calling on us in particular, the church. 
Revival, the object of revival is the church, the professing church. We are the ones that need to be revived. When I look at the nation, I'm in distress. I was asked the other day, how do you size up what's going on? I said, well, there are two things. One is there's greater hostility on the outside. Have you noticed that? Greater hostility toward Christ and the gospel outside the church. And there's greater immaturity on the inside. That's what I've noticed in my 45 years of being a Christian. More hostility on the outside, less maturity on the inside. We are in declension spiritually as a church. I was then asked, well, are you optimistic at all? And I said, about the, church, about the world? No, not at all. I'm very cynical about the world. What measure of renewal does the world possibly have? Look at all the solutions that they come up with. Have any of them worked? Will any of them work? No. I'm not optimistic at all about the world. I'm radiantly optimistic about the church. Radiantly optimistic. Why? Because of that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Do you understand the radiant optimism that is due all of us because of the people that God addresses in this very text? He's saying it's for you. Yes, Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, Mandarin. Yes, Christ Church Presbyterian. Yes, your Sunday school class. Yes, your small group. Yes, your family. If my people who are called by my name. So he says in this text that revival is offered to all of God's people. One of the places in the English or Gaelic speaking world that is famous for its revivals are the outer Hebrides, the islands that are way out west of Scotland. And very few people go there. There's not very much reason to go there unless you know about the revivals on the Isle of Lewis. And from 1828 all the way through the mid 20th century, there were tremendous revivals on this little island of Lewis. And I've heard preachers speak of these great revivals, one of them in particular in 1949 to 1953 when there was an outbreak of the presence of God. In fact, the way they described the revival in Barvis, a little fishing village on the Isle of Lewis, was God came to Barvis. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the essence of revival. God shows up. He presents himself. It changes everything. So when Allison and I, some years ago, took a little trip to Scotland, I said, sweetie, I hate to take the time, except we've got to take the ferry and go out to Stornoway, the little harbor on the Isle of Lewis, and we've got to drive through Lewis and the Isle of Harris where these revivals occurred. I just want to see it. I just want to be on the same turf where these great revivals occurred. So you land in Stornoway, get your rental car, and you start to move west over the island. It's so small. It's like, I don't know, 15 miles this way and six miles this way. It's a very small island. You go over the little ridge of the mountain and you come down to the city of Barvis, this great metropolis of probably 125 people. No, no traffic light, just little cottages. Where's the church? Well, I found the church. It's smaller than this room. And I want to talk more about that revival and how it occurred. But it just dawned on me, God goes into the most common, out-of-the-way, unexpected places and chooses the people that are most unlikely people to revive. That's me, and that's you. And I want you to notice who the revival is for. It's for God's people. Now, thirdly, once again from verse 14, we get this truth. We must seek revival. We must seek it. If then, 
If you will, I will. Brothers and sisters, we must seek what God invites us to do because the essence of revival is simply knowing him. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, I came that you might have life, life to the full. That's revival. Revival is life to the full, which is intimate communion with God himself. This is the very essence of being a human being. We are made in his image that we, unlike the dogs and the cats and the squirrels of this world, may actually know him. We know the one who made us. We know the one who remade us. We know the one who controls all of our history. We now know the one who has loved us from all eternity. This is the purpose of human life. This is the goal of our existence. This is a raison d'etre for human beings. So we must seek revival. Let me cite Leonard Ravenhill, who was a revivalist of the last century, who said, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. G. Campbell Morgan, who you know preceded Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London, one time said, we cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. You and I cannot bring about a corporate revival either in the church or even in your family or in the nation. You can't do that. That's a sovereign act of God. He will choose when to do that. But when it comes to your soul, this is a different matter. You remember in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Christ sends letters to seven churches. They're all churches that need to be revived. All of them. That's, that's the reason for Revelation, is to revive your imagination as to who God is and where he's taken history and why we're here. That's the purpose for Revelation. And in those letters, you remember when he writes to Laodicea, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will merely open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. He is on the door of your heart right now, knocking on the door. And just simply saying, will you open the door? And if you will, I will come in. The reason we are not revived is because we don't want to be. Because of the wickedness of our heart. And it's an issue of profound pride that we'll get into in our next session. That keeps us from being revived. Would you like to be revived? Let me ask you. Would you really like to be revived? Then you will be. Jeremiah said, quoting Moses from Deuteronomy, If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So when folks say, I've been seeking him and I can't find him, it's not the truth. You've not been seeking him in a way that's genuine. Because God promises, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So we must seek revival because it is available. And that's the fourth point from verse 14. God grants revival to those who seek it. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Has God ever said, I will do something and he hasn't done it. 
Has God ever promised that he will do something and you think he won't do it? The chronicler is taking the Israelites of the early 4th century B.C. back to fundamentals. God, going back to the days of Solomon, has made you a promise. Don't call him a liar. Open your heart to him. He is knocking on the door of our hearts. The second law of thermodynamics seems to rule the day so often. But there's another law. It's the law of God's love. The law of God's profound love for you. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, who has become famous through the recent book by uh, Dane Orland, uh, published last year. Thomas Goodwin experienced revival, personal and corporate revival. And Goodwin said, here's what happens when the Lord is reviving your heart. As we are, we know if we're right-minded that God loves us. But he said, here's the difference. Thomas Goodwin said, if you're walking down the way as a little boy and you're holding the hand of your father walking down the sidewalk, you know that he loves you. He's told you that he loves you. He puts food on the table. He protects you. But when your daddy picks you up and rubs your back and holds your head to his neck and says, son, I would do anything for you. I profoundly love you. That's another experience. That's what revival is. And God offers it to us, even this morning. Will you take it? In this next time that we'll spend together this morning, I want to talk about the steps that we can take that God may come in and sup with us and he with him. Let us pray. Father, please revive our hearts. This is our prayer. And would you be gracious to your church everywhere and revive the heart of the church? And would you be gracious and allow even this nation, once again, having waited 115 years, oh Lord, for you to do a mighty work again, would you please come in this time, in this culture, in this place where we're living and serving, would you do a mighty work for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.